This is the Ingalls Information Aisle with Leah McGrath, helping you eat healthy, feel great, and understand your nutrition. Now, here's your host, Ingalls Dietitian Leah McGrath. Good Saturday morning. Welcome to the Ingalls Information Aisle. This is Leah McGrath, your Ingalls Dietitian. And um, if you were a longtime listener of the show, you know over the I don't know, 11, 12 years we've been doing the show. I've had a number of different dietitians on the show talking about uh, their field that they're in, different books they've written. Um, so it's great to be able to promote fellow dietitians. And it's great to be able to talk to dietitians who are working in different different type of space than I do as a retail or supermarket dietitian. So joining me by phone today, I have Jill Weisenberger and Jill is a dietitian and she lives in Virginia. So hi, Jill. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. Yes. And I've, Jill, um, you and I have, um, done a couple of little trips and things together to learn more about agriculture. And we've been at conferences together. Um, I, I would say, but I don't, I don't think I really got to know you until maybe about four or five years ago, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's probably so. We've been lucky to go to similar conferences yeah. and learning experiences. And how long have you been a dietitian? Oh, almost forever. <laughs> uh, I think I'm coming up on 28 years. Soon. Okay, okay. So, yeah, a long time I. The whole time I've lived in Virginia, okay, so to almost 28 years. So, you know, one of the questions I like to ask fellow dietitians um, is about sort of their their path to becoming a dietitian. And one of the questions I often ask is, was there something, some class or some person or some event that really sparked that interest for you in becoming a registered dietitian? Yeah, there there is actually. So I have a background, um, a working background before I went to school to become a dietitian. My first degree from the University of Florida is in advertising, hmm. and I worked in public relations and marketing. Never specifically advertising, but I worked in public relations and marketing. Um, and by the time I was a senior in college, I met a roommate's friend who was studying to be a dietitian. And it's like, well, what the heck is that? (laughs) That's a career? That's a, you know, (laughs) something you can study? I had no idea. And I was interested in nutrition mostly because I was interested in managing my weight. Oh, okay. But so listening to her, I got really excited about all the things that a dietitian might do. But here I am, a senior in college, studying at the journalism school, journalism and communication school, with no math, right. no chemistry, no biology, no physiology. You think, well, I guess I'm going to have to graduate with this degree I'm no longer interested in. So I did, and I worked for about three years in marketing and PR, and I just didn't love it. Uh. And I decided to go back to school, and they took me four and a half years to get a two-year master's degree uh-huh. because I had to take Chem 1, Chem 2, Chem right. 3, Biochem, Organic Chem, da-da-da-da-da-da. Right. Um, and it was a really, really smart decision. And I, I, my career has been fabulous the entire 27-plus years, and I get to combine my marketing and PR background mm-hmm with my nutrition background, 
I just think that it all worked out beautifully. That is so interesting, Jill, because I did not know that about you. My first degree was in speech communications with a uh-huh. writing minor. And um, I was always sort of fascinated by health and nutrition, but I didn't know anything about becoming a dietitian. And um, I, I think I had a friend, too, who was studying that. But all the math and science really intimidated me. And me I'm, too. I know. Too. I had to take, I have to tell you, Jill, when I went back to school to become a dietitian, I had to take a lot of the undergrad classes. And I actually had to take at Maryland a class, a math class that was like, it wasn't even a 100 level. I would call it like a negative 100 level. <laughs> My first class that I took, I took just one class the summer I went back, and it was pre-calculus, right. and I was married six weeks when I went back <gasps> oh to school, my gosh. and every day my husband tutored me. Oh, every, my he's gosh. A scientist. God every bless day. him, right? <laughs> yeah, he said that he had to go running to burn off the anxiety I caused him, <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't know how I graduated high school with such little understanding of math. <laughs> Yeah, that would probably, yeah, well, because I had very significant math and science, math phobia, definitely not as much science. Yeah, exactly. But it, and I also really appreciate the fact that you've mentioned all of the different science classes that we as dietitians have to take in our undergraduate or, or if we go on to have uh, a master's in nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I don't think many people are aware that, you know, I took biochemistry and anatomy and physiology and organic chemistry and microbiology, plus all the food science things that we take. It's, um, yeah, I would say that's a a very common uh, misunderstanding about what dietitians do, not to mention the 1200 hour internship we have to get accepted to and then go through and our our board exam that we have to take. So mm-hmm. there's a lot to becoming a dietitian that people don't realize. But And I'm also glad that you said that your first degree has actually helped you in some ways in what you do it now. Has. Yeah, It has an awful lot. It's given me a unique set of skills. And, um, you know, it's one thing. Nutrition is a science, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't get. Right. But having that communications background has helped me to communicate the science of nutrition in ways that I think is more approachable to the average person. I totally agree. Um, I And the reason, if you're wondering why we have Jill on Ingalls Information Isle, is that she has a book called Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide that we're going to be talking about. And Jill just used the word approachable. And I would say that this book is a very approachable way to understand what pre-diabetes is and also how you can take the step, some steps to be healthier and some very very user-friendly type of tools. And we're going to be um, talking about this book. Um, It is through the uh, American Diabetes Association. Stay tuned as we talk more with registered dietitian Jill Weisenberger about her book, Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Ingalls Information Aisle. This is Leah McGrath, the registered dietitian for your Ingalls supermarkets. And I'm on the phone now with fellow dietitian Jill Weisenberger. And Jill has a book that's called Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide. Um, we were just talking before we went to break about the fact that this is, a, this is a very approachable book. It's not super big. It's got, um, Jill, I really like too how uh, in the book you've broken out, like you have these segments um, that are highlighted in blue, almost like these are um, the key points for the chapter that you've written mm-hmm. in here. Um, I thought that that was very helpful too, uh, to to kind of focus in on some of the key points in each chapter. Um, yeah, I, I do definitely try to make it so that people have um, not just information, but in, in know, they know how to use the information. So my goal is always to empower people, not just give them information, but how are they going to use it is really important. So let's back up a little bit and talk about what pre-diabetes is, because, you know, I've... You know, I remember back when they first came up, started using that term that we that hasn't uh, I want to say, is that maybe 20 years old or a little bit? I don't think it's quite that old, but um, I was going to say about 12 or 15. Oh, okay. But I I really don't recall. You you could be right. So tell everybody what what does pre-diabetes mean? Well, most people, when they hear prediabetes or diabetes, they think blood sugar. Right. And that's both correct. That is correct, but it's incomplete. So by definition, prediabetes is when your blood sugar is above normal but below the level of diabetes. Okay. So it's, you could call it like stage one or whatever that the, the folks in charge decided to call it prediabetes. So it's that problem at its early stage. Okay. But both type 2 diabetes and prediabetes are not just blood sugar problems. They are metabolic problems, and they affect the liver and blood pressure and triglycerides and cholesterol and the blood vessels and on and on and on. So it's not just a blood sugar problem, but when we diagnose somebody we diagnose them with their blood sugar level. So it's either a fasting blood sugar, some random blood sugar level, so after they've eaten, or an A1C. And an A1C is an indication of your average blood sugar over the last several weeks, two to three months. Okay. So, um, and, and you actually have a little chart on this on page four in your book that says for the 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 numbers that we're looking at and when we're mm-hmm. using that tool of um, um, blood sugar, if the fast if you're pl- fasting plasma glucose for prediabetes is 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter, and mm-hmm. then diabetes is anything greater than or equal to 126. Correct. So normal is going to be under 100. Diabetes is 126 and higher, and that window in between 100 to 125 is prediabetes. So you know when I when I it's been a long time since I did clinical uh, clinical work or even out and outpatient work. What I used to tell people is that 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 window of between if you're above normal, what's considered normal blood sugar, but not at um, the number for diabetes is an opportunity. You can see it as an opportunity. It's like you're, 
your body is kind of giving you a little red flag and saying, hey, yes. you need to do something here. You know, you yes. ne- yeah, you need to take some action. Right. So it is a wake-up call. So definitely this is the time to take action. But I do want people to understand that pre-diabetes is not pre-problem. Okay. It actually means that a metabolic problem has been going on for a while, but it has gotten to the level where your own body's insulin just cannot do enough. So that is why blood sugars have gone up just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And if we make no changes, if we have prediabetes and we make no changes, nearly everybody in that position will end up with diabetes within a decade. And many of them will have it much earlier than that. So I always tell people, your window of opportunity, your greatest opportunity is today because prediabetes and diabetes are progressive. Mm-hmm. So you may have the greatest impact today, much more than tomorrow or next week. Okay. Um, and we're going to go through some of the points that she has that uh, Jill has written about in her book, which is um, you can available through the American Diabetes Association, right, Jill? Yes, and also Amazon and some of your bookstores. Okay. And soon it'll be available in BJ's. Okay. So you so can find Amazon it. Amazon is always the easiest. Everybody easy. knows how to find Amazon. Okay. And um, through the American Diabetes Association, it's shopdiabetes.org. You can find this yes. book. Um, and I just kind of went through and sort of wrote down some of the things that really jumped out at me in the book, and we'll go through those. But Jill, let's talk about risk factors for uh, for diabetes and and some of the things that we want to be paying attention to, which may put us at greater risk for diabetes. Sure. Um, well, some risk factors we can't do anything about. So every year as we get older, we have a greater risk because insulin resistance and um, I'm, I'm going to say beta cell failure a couple of times probably, and what that is is the beta cells of the pancreas fail, okay. and they don't put out enough insulin. So every year as, we're, as we age, we are more likely to have insulin resistance and less beta cells. So, and also men have a greater risk. Um, you have a risk if there are other people in your family. You might be really slim and active and have a healthy diet, but if you have a bunch of family members with type 2 diabetes, there's a really good chance you're going to get it. Um, so you just really need to be on top of it. You, we cannot be blind to the fact that genetics plays a very big role. So even healthy living is no guarantee. It just does a lot to prevent it or delay it, but it's not a guarantee. Um, And then also, race and ethnicity make a big difference. So higher than average risk are conferred to a lot of ethnic minorities, including African American, um, Latino, Native American, Asian American, and Pacific Islander. Jill, we're going to go. The- we're going to go and uh, pick up these other risk factors when we come back from the next break. Stay tuned to the Ingles Information Aisle.
Welcome back to the Ingalls Information Aisle. This is Leah, your Ingalls dietitian, talking with Jill Weisenberger, and she's a registered dietitian as well. And she has a book through the American Diabetes Association called Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide. It's a very user-friendly book with some great information, not only about your risk factors for diabetes, but also to kind of take control of your your lifestyle, your eating habits, your exercise habits, to really kind of position yourself in a better place to reduce your risk. Um, Jill and I were just talking about some of the risk factors for diabetes. And um, as she was pointing out, some of these risk factors were beyond our control. And then some of the risk factors are within our control. And Jill, one of the ones that really um, was a good reminder for me uh, was one you have in here about sleep deprivation. Can you talk yes. a little bit about what effect uh, poor sleep habits or not getting enough sleep has on your your blood sugar, your blood glucose? Well, one thing, just think about being sleep deprived. Well, that decreases our energy level to go exercise sure. and make a healthy meal. We become less motivated. So it has that indirect effect that way. But lack of sleep also affects various hormones. And we know from studies in people with diabetes and even healthy people that depriving them of sleep, it lowers their ability to use insulin properly. So it mm-hmm. makes them more insulin resistant, which, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is one of the hallmarks of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, loss of beta cell cell function, so loss of the ability to produce insulin, and also um, the insulin resistance. So sleep deprivation affects us indirectly and it affects us directly by making our bodies less sensitive to insulin. So um, the research suggests that seven to eight hours a night is that sweet spot. Yeah. So somebody who's sleeping a whole lot all the time might be sleeping a lot because they're unwell. And people who aren't sleeping very much, often it's because of poor stress management or busy lives, and we um, rationalize that giving up sleep doesn't do anything besides make us sleepy, so we can put up with it, so we want to get more done or have more fun, but it's not just that. We might be having more fun and getting more done, but we are really damaging our health. Yeah, good reminder for many of us uh, who have uh, busy stressful, fast-paced lives. I want to really make sure we touch on something that I really liked about this book. Can you tell everybody your acronym for HURDLE and what that means? Because this was one of my favorite things on the book. Well, thank you. Um, So I use this a lot with my patients. So this is, of course, how it came about. Um, and, And I put this in the book because it's been so useful with my patients. So hurdle, um, we just use each one of those letters to identify a potential obstacle in our day or our week and then how to overcome it. So I first ask people to look at how, so H is for how, how is your upcoming schedule different? So it's really, really um, important to get into the habit of scanning your day or your week to see what might get into the way of getting to exercise class, making a healthy meal, packing your lunch, whatever it is. 
So how is your under your upcoming schedule different? And then you for understand how these events or obligations are going to get into your way. Um, will somebody else be in charge of your meal? Do you um, have a late appointment? Something like that that could inter- interrupt. Um, and then record your options. So that's R. So I always tell people brainstorm, write down every possible solution, even the silly ones. So if you don't know that how you're going to get to exercise class because you have a late meeting, so some possible solutions are, might be silly, go to your boss and say, I'm not coming to that meeting. <laughs> but I'll tell you, by writing that down, it might trigger something else. So I know you're not probably going to do that, but it might trigger another idea. Maybe you can ask somebody else to pick up your kids at work. Maybe you can find a different class. I mean, there's so many different things. So record your options. And D is decide on a solution. So try to pick something that is realistic that from your possible list of solutions. And then L is the one where everybody gets messed up. This is where you have to list the steps to make it work for you. So often people come up with a plan, let's say they're going to pack their lunch, but what they forget the L, the list, the steps, but what are they going to pack? Do they have a lunchbox? Do they have a place to keep their lunch cold? So you want to list the steps, and then E is exercise your choice, so carry that out and, and, and evaluate it. So what went well, what didn't go so well, what might you do next time? But the, the whole idea of this is to recognize there are obstacles in our way every single day. Right. And some of them we're very aware of and others we're not. But if we make the habit of scanning our day, scanning our week, and then thinking through all the various steps, these are the people I find when they get into this habit, these are the ones that are successful long-term. So it's about building this habit. I love it. I think it's a, I I love that acronym. I'm going to just put it on my refrigerator and in my daytimer just to remind myself. There's a, we have about a minute and a half left and there's a couple other things that I really liked about your book. Um, You give great advice about grocery shopping and um, I told you offline thank you so much for not telling people to shop the perimeter and pointing out that there's some great and healthy options in the middle of the store where they were talking about canned beans or dried beans or whole grains um, or frozen foods so I appreciate that an awful lot and um, the other thing that I really like too is you had um, we have about a minute left. You had a list that shows for people to document their activity, but also to document the times that they're not active. And right. I love that. I think that that is such a good reminder. Like, wow, you know, I went to the gym for an hour, but I sat on the couch for four hours last night. So I think that right. makes you more accountable. So the reason this is so important is that we have discovered that even among people who exercise, being inactive for long periods of time is metabolically unhealthy yeah. in terms of blood sugar, diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. Yeah. So the American Diabetes Association has a recommendation to break up long periods of inactivity with 
three minutes of activity every 30 minutes. That's great advice. So I do have in the book, and I do use this with my own um, patients and clients, uh, just, just a little one-sheet thing to document what you're doing during your day. And can you say that you were active three minutes out of every 30? And then, I mean, if, obviously, if you have a long commute, you know, you're not going to stop your car, get out and do push-ups on the sidewalk. But if you're spending a lot of time watching TV or sitting at the computer or working at a desk, you can identify that and then come up with a plan. Thank you so much, Jill, for joining us on the Ingalls Information Hour. Look for Jill's book, Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide on Amazon. Jill, thanks again for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for helping spread the word about pre-diabetes and that there's really a lot we can do about it. 